listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. As the plates are coming forward, we are starting a new series together. It's going to be an eight-week series, but this is going to be, in my opinion, the most important series that I've offered you. Um, because this series, though everything in Scripture is about us drawing closer to God, this series is very specifically and very practically about us. Uh, this series is entitled, I've called it, New Vision, New Hope, and New Environments. And it's an eight-week working out of the new vision that we want to cast to you as a church family today and to us as a church today. This is a new vision. It's a vision that you have prayed about, that God has started working in long before I got here, long before many of us even came. This is a vision that the elders and other staff have labored over, that we've all labored over. And I want to present this to you today so God can move us to live into this because this is a vision of new direction it's a vision of hope. It's a vision that is going to embrace some of the old things of who we are. And it's a vision that's going to give birth to some of the new things of what we can be. And it's a full vision. Um, and it's a deeply, in my opinion, deeply rooted, theologically informed, gospel-driven, mission-oriented vision. Uh, so we're going to cast that today. And we're going to work this out in very practical ways over the next, uh, over the next eight weeks. So I want to lay that out to you ahead of time. And so before we get into the conversation today, let's, let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes that we may see clearly today. That in your presence, you would stir our hearts that we may feel. Father, that you would open our ears that we would hear you and understand and think clearly that you would remove all distractions and other noise. Uh, Father, we ask that you would open our minds that we would think clearly, that we would know what you would have us know, so that we could become who you'd have us become. So be here, be present. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah was a prophet of God who was sent to God's people. God's people were in a mess. They were in exile. They were scattered. They were no longer the close-knit, tight community in one location that they had always been. And so God sent Isaiah to them to give them a word of hope. Because when people are scattered, when they're in exile, people feel as though their future is uncertain and their hope is unsure. And when people are scattered and exiled, their life can very easily feel out of sorts, can feel out of order. You can look and see that life isn't what it should be and what it even used to be. And God's people knew that full well. And they were hurting and they were oppressed and they were bruised and they were battered. And there was a lot of injustice within their own camps, and there was a lot of injustice around them. And God sent them Isaiah. And Isaiah had been preaching this message of hope. And Isaiah gets to a point in his entire work, we call it the the book of Isaiah, he gets to a point about halfway where he begins to tell them about a certain hope and a promise of a new and restored and renewed future. And he talks about this anointed one. Anointed one meaning this Messiah. Messiah meaning this one that God would choose to make happen everything he wants to happen, that God would choose to do all that was needed to make a scattered people feel whole again, to give them renewal and revival and life and hope. God had one he was going to choose to usher in a new way of life for people, especially for his own people. And he called in the book of Isaiah this Messiah, this anointed one, a suffering servant because he would be a king But he would be one who would take on the suffering of humanity. He would take on the pain 
that God's people felt. And he would try to do something with the pain himself. And he would indeed do something with the pain. But he would suffer on behalf of God's people. And so now in this particular text, we understand that this suffering servant, this Messiah, and this anointed one, his name is Jesus. And that is who Isaiah was talking about. We know this because we look at it from this side of the cross. And so now in this text, you're going to see in the pronouns, they're, they're a little different because Isaiah, though he is preaching the message and though he is offering the word and though he is stirring the conversation, he is actually not the one speaking. Jesus is speaking, very specifically Jesus is speaking through Isaiah to God's people at this point. And so now we have the text, Isaiah 61. Getting verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, gospel, to the poor. The poor being the weak, the powerless, the needy. He has sent me to bind up or, or bandage the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim literally meaning to cry out loudly, to cry out loudly liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. And then listen to this. This is so beautiful. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of despair. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting by the Lord. To glorify Him they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. Jesus, through Isaiah, is telling God's people that the tables of life are about to be turned. That which was broken will be bandaged. That which was torn down will be rebuilt that other people now will do the work of service and they will no longer be oppressed and slaves to a life that they cannot control that God will not leave them the way they are because God made a promise to Abraham see and he made a promise that he would give his people a land and he would bring them together and keep them together as his people and he would do things in his people that would change the world and that ultimately prophetically would change eternity and would change all peoples. And God will make that promise full. But this, this is just a hope they have. This is just a hope they dream of. And in this hope, God is not only saying that he's going to bring gospel to those who are poor, literally meaning powerless or needy, that he's not just going to bandage up or bind up and bring healing into the brokenhearted. He's not just going to cry aloud this freedom to those who feel entrapped by life, who feel in bondage of life. He's not just going to open up the prisons of those who are bound, the, the dungeons and prisons of life that they live in, the hopelessness, the uncertainty. But he's going to proclaim a new year. And this new year is really going to be a new era, a new age. And it's the new year, Isaiah calls, of the Lord's favor. And this is a very interesting text because this phrase in verse 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is a direct reference to a beautiful, beautiful event that God commanded his people to embrace many years ago. So we're going to turn to the, to the most exciting book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. So if you'll turn there, Leviticus chapter 25. Because this year of the Lord's favor, 
God called this the year of Jubilee. And I just, I want to share with you, Jubilee is just another word for party. It really is. Of joy, of rejoicing, of excitement. And so this is the year of party, the year of Jubilee that God has commanded His people to embrace. And I want to read this text with you. It's just a snapshot of what Jubilee is. In addition, you must count off seven Sabbath years and seven years times seven, adding up to 49 years in all. Then on the Day of Atonement, on the 50th year, so every 50 years, blow the trumpets loud and long throughout the land. This year will be set apart as holy, a time to proclaim release for all of those who live there. It will be a jubilee year for you when each of you returns to the land that belonged to your ancestors and rejoins your clan. Yes, the 50th year will be a jubilee for you. During that year, do not plant any seeds or store away any of the crops that will grow naturally and do not process, do not process the grapes that grow on your unpruned vines. In other words, God is saying, in the year of Jubilee, everyone must take a year-long vacation. How that would be so nice today. Hey, God commanded me to take a year off. It will be Jubilee for you, and you must observe it as a special and holy time. You may, however, eat the produce that grows naturally in the fields that year. In the year of Jubilee, each of you must return to the lands that belong to your ancestors. When you make an agreement with a neighbor to buy or sell property, you must never take advantage of each other. This is just a snapshot, so I want to give you a brief sketch as to what Jubilee really did. See, every 50 years, God had set out this leveling agent. It was God's leveling agent to make all things new again. If you found yourself in financial trouble and had to sell your land in order to put food on your table, and maybe in worst cases had to sell some of your family as slaves so that you could provide for your existing family, in the year of Jubilee, on the 50th year, all of that was restored to you. It was all returned to you. So if you happen to buy land from that poor brother or sister, that poor Israelite, and you were enjoying that land on the 50th year in the year of Jubilee, you had to give that land back to the one who rightfully and originally owned it, regardless of why they had to get rid of it. Not only that, all debts were wiped clean in the year of Jubilee. No matter what you owed and no matter for what reason, on the 50th year in God's people, according to his command, everything was made new again and everything was leveled out. All debts were clean. And not only that, if you had slaves, all slaves were freed again. Everyone had a chance in the year of Jubilee for a fresh start, for restoration in their life, for a hope. And God's desire was also to close the gap that existed between people, between the haves and the have-nots, and the rich and the poor, and to get rid of the injustice that existed in his people's lives. And the year of Jubilee was a fresh start, and it was a time of renewal and revival and restoration and it was what God had commanded because it was God's way. It was a certain hope and a certain future that they could have lived into. But sadly, we know according to history, at least all that we know according to history, the year of Jubilee was never, never observed by God's people. And, and you can imagine why it wasn't. You have to let go of everything. And, but it was God's leveling agent. It was God's leveling agent of love and grace and mercy and justice and hope. It was the way God made everything new again and gave everyone a fresh start. I'm saying that a lot. It was God's way of bringing a sense of restoration, of returning, of renewing, of reviving. 
His people. Their lives. And not only that, it was a very tangible expression of the promise that God made to His people. That He would never leave them in a broken and hopeless and captive and uncertain and oppressed and impoverished place in life. But even greater, even greater than all that, the year of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee was a foretaste of the kingdom of God. The year of Jubilee was something to show them what one day when this promised Messiah would come would indeed happen in the world. That everyone and everything, regardless of where they had been and why they got into the position they were in, would have a chance for restoration, renewal, and revival. This is good news for people who feel powerless and weak. This is good news for people who felt trapped. This is good news for people who felt scattered. This is good news for people who felt as though they were in bondage and didn't have a certain hope and a certain future and certainly didn't know what tomorrow would bring, much less 45 years from now. This was a good, good hope. This was good news. And so we move 500 years ahead of Isaiah's sermon and we find Jesus. We find now that the promised Messiah and anointed one had entered the scene. And that the kingdom of God has indeed broken in. And we find now that Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. And he's going to go to the synagogue as he always does. And he's going to have a little word to say if he's asked, as he always would. And this particular day would be no exception. Except there would be a great difference. This particular day, as Jesus stood up before the people in the synagogue, he grabbed the scroll of Isaiah that was handed to him. And he fumbled through Isaiah's scroll and he looked for a very specific passage. And this passage that he looked for was a very meaningful passage to the heart of the people that would be present. It was a passage that spoke to a hopeless, exiled, scattered, entrapped people. And it was actually Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, that Jesus chose. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Luke 4. In Luke 4, beginning verse 18, Jesus said, and he said it in the flesh this time, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim gospel. Good news. To the poor, to the weak, powerless, or needy. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, those who are broken and bruised, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you continue to read, Jesus sets down the scroll, every eye is on him, waiting to hear what he has to say. And he says to them in Scripture, he says, Today, in your presence, this Scripture has been fulfilled. Fulfilled. And I don't know about you, but when I look around in life, I see a lot of people who feel powerless and weak and needy. I've felt that way. But this is fulfilled, Jesus. I don't understand I look around and I see people entrapped. Entrapped in situations in life that they don't feel they can live under. Worries and anxieties held captive in situations. And they don't know how they're going to get out. I look around and I see that, but yet Jesus is saying that there's freedom. And I don't know about you, but I see a lot of people who live life as though they're blind. I've lived that life. Where you stumble around in darkness and you bump into addiction and you bump into habits and you bump into bad choices and, and you just you just can't make light a day. I see a lot of that. I see it I see it in this building, I see it outside the building. We all see it. 
But yet Jesus said, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, I don't know about you, but I see many people who are oppressed. Oppressed literally meaning bruised. Their backs are worn from the burden and the weight of life. They are pressed down. I see Egypt. I see Williamsburg. I see the world and I think, wow, the scripture has been fulfilled. But yet Jesus said the scripture has been has been fulfilled. What is Jesus doing in Luke chapter 4? Jesus is doing something that I think is one of the most impactful things for us as those who have chosen to follow Jesus. In Luke 4 verse 18... In 19, Jesus is announcing his mission. This is the beginning of his ministry. Jesus is saying, hey, you want to know what I'm going to be about? I'm going to be about this. I'm going to be about preaching a gospel to those who are powerless, proclaiming freedom to those who are in bondage, and I'm going to be about proclaiming a new year of the Lord's favor. And it's so great because this same text, proclaim the new year of the Lord's favor, is Jesus saying, I'm going to proclaim that now there's an era, there's an age of jubilee. There's an age now through me that God is going to level the playing ground in people's lives. That God is going to bring and invite people into restoration. Bring people and invite people in to renewal and revival. And Jesus is doing something beautiful because he's casting a vision of a new humanity. Jesus here is casting a vision of a new life, church. He's casting a vision of what life should look like since he has come. And what life not just should look like, but actually can look like because he has come. And he's casting this vision. And it is his mission to make it happen in people's lives. I want to clear up two misuses of this text, if you don't mind, just briefly. Especially where it talks about proclaiming good news to the poor and release to captives and the oppressed. To limit the meaning of this text to only physical and social states misses half of the context. Jesus is addressing a very spiritual reality that there are people who live empty and powerless and hurtful and needy lives. That there are people who are inwardly trapped and outwardly trapped in emotions and bondage and stuck and lost in sin. And as they are religious people are still captive to things. To limit this text to merely physical and social states misses half of the context. But the second misuse of this text is to say what I just said and ignore the reality that this text is also speaking to social and physical states. That Jesus in his gospel and his mission did indeed call us in Matthew 25 and many other places to take care of and serve and love the poor. To do good things for his glory because that's good news to them. To proclaim that there can be freedom from other oppression. So two misuses would be to err on the extreme of either of those sides. Because they're both a part of the context. And when you read the Gospels, they're both a part of the mission. There are people who struggle with life. Because there's a God who has said something about life. When Jesus said, this has been fulfilled, Jesus is saying that redemption and restoration is being offered to anyone is being offered to all. That if people will just trust who Jesus is, believe Him for what He says, that restoration can be felt and it can be known in a very tangible way. That people can become who God originally created them to be, restoration. That renewal can happen. That revival can happen. Hear me on this, because this is so important. Jesus is saying that your heart, anyone's heart, He wants to flood every heart. He wants to revive every soul. 
He wants to renew every mind. He wants to take everyone and make them whole again. He wants to open every eye so they can see clearly. And He wants them to be led into eternity with Him forever. This Scripture has been fulfilled in His hearing. This Scripture has been fulfilled in our hearing. We are called to live into the fulfillment of this Scripture and to proclaim that in Christ, in Christ, redemption and restoration has begun. Restoration means... That God wants to return things to what they were intended to be. Restoration means He wants to renew and revive hearts and lives and families and souls. The present and eternity and all creation. And that not only is He going to do it, He has begun the work of doing it. He's not going to make all things new. He is making all things new. Because it's the year of Jubilee. It's the year of the Lord's favor. And that is Jesus' mission. And that is his vision of life. So what does this mean for us as a church? Well, generically, church has this tendency to become an institution. That if we're not careful, we can begin to fall into the trap in thinking that we somehow own the institution or have some stake of ownership in, this, in, in the institution, in church. In other words, I've done this, maybe you've done this, I know I've done this, that if we've been at a place for a very long time, or maybe we were a part of starting something, that even though the church is not an organization, that it's actually a living organism, and even though it's not ours, and we would say that it is not ours, we begin to make decisions and, and, and have conversations and begin to act as though somehow it really is ours. And so what we do then is we then take the mission of God and we we come dangerously short of missing it. Because God has a mission. It's what Jesus said He was doing and was going to do. And since God owns the mission, He has a church to carry out His mission, and it is His church. See, the church is the church of Jesus Christ. It is the church of God. It's what He owns. He is the head He's the one who gives it life, meaning breath. He is the one who gives it purpose. And here's the thing. It's natural to fall into a tendency of thinking that we have ownership in something that we don't own. It's very real. You hear it all the time. You hear it in phrases like, I want a church just for me. But here's the reality of this text. If what Jesus is saying is true in Luke 4, and this really is his mission, and this really is the vision of a new life, and if the church really is God's church, if he really is the head, if he really is the great shepherd, then here's something we need to embrace and we need to understand and we need to try to live into somehow that I need to try and live into. We, the church and the mission of God is not about the saved. It involves the saved. The church is not about the saved. It involves the saved. The church is about God doing what God has wanted and created the church to do. And here's the thing. It makes sense to me because if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you already have God. I already have God. I have him. He's mine. He's yours. He's ours. We have him. We have everything we need to live a restored and redeemed life. And sure, we know we've been redeemed and we know our relationship with God has been restored in Jesus Christ. But we have God and we therefore have the ability and we have the passion and the love. We have what we need to live into a life that looks like it's being restored, that looks like it's being redeemed. We have God. This is his. We're his now. 
We're his body. He's the head. We have him. There are people out there, and there may be people in here, they don't have God. And that's who God is after. God's looking at us and saying, you have me. You're enjoying me. Now learn to enjoy me better. Obey me. All those things. But you have me. I'm after them. And I need you who have me. Since you know me and you know who I am and know what I'm about. I need you to get on board with me and go out there and tell them who I am so I can have them and they can have me. The church exists for mission. It's not about the saved anymore. It involves the saved. That's, that's gospel. And that is hard. But that's gospel. And see, then it changes the way we live life and do life. It changes the way we see mission. Mission is not something we pay for, we do in foreign places. Mission is something by virtue of my new birth in Jesus I am called to live into. And here's the thing about mission. Mission and ministry is not about church programs and church ministries. If you and I are children of God, if we're Christians, we are called to join God in what He's doing. He's already signed us up by virtue of our new birth. We are signed up. We have said we are. We, what matters to you matters to us, and we're going to pursue that with you. That is what we said, and God takes that very seriously. And so here's the truth of mission. Mission is not something that you and I are supposed to squeeze into our lives, church, no matter what we do for a living. Mission is something that if what God is saying is true, if what Jesus is saying is true in Luke 4, mission is something we're called to rearrange our lives around. If we really believe in an eternity, and you have friends and family, and you know people, and you see people, who you know what's going to happen if their life dies without knowing God, mission is not something you casually engage if you see people who are broken and, bro- and oppressed and, and, and impoverished and powerless and needy, and yet your Lord, your Jesus, my Jesus says, this is who I am and this is what I want you to live into, then it's not something that we wait for the church to do. Mission is something that you and I, as everyday people, in everyday ways, in everyday places, engage in. Because we are being restored. We are being redeemed. And God wants others who are broken, and who are battered, and who are stuck in their sin their hopelessness, to know that they weren't created to live that way. He wants to restore them too. It's a year of the Lord's favor. And we don't need to be like Israel and not embrace and celebrate this calling. So how does it affect us as a church? Well, if we really want to be a community... We want to be a community who embraces discipleship, embraces the mission of God, the gospel. If we want to be the community that over 40 years, God laid it on the hearts of some very passionate and faithful people to start this thing called a church. If we want to be the community that God created us to be, we got to continue to move in the direction that was, God was moving you in long before I got here. But we need a very clear picture of what this life will look like together. And so here's the vision we want to cast to you. Here's the picture. We desperately want to be a church that is joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. 
And this is not just mere words. This is something that has to be tangible. This is something that has to give direction. This is something, if this is a picture, if this is what we want to look like, this is something that we start to have to make decisions from here on, start making decisions in light of this. And we can do that because the church isn't ours. It's God's and he's in control and he's in charge. And so we can start making decisions as though we want to look like a people who are joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives because we understand what restoration means. We understand as people who already have God what's on the line. We know what people need in this world whether they know it or not. And so we need to be joined in God. Every word, every word in this vision, every word matters. Joined, committed. No longer am I going to come and I'm going to sit in a chair or give my money or take the Lord's Supper or listen to a sermon or message. No longer am I going to just read through and see that there's a need and I'm not going to pray and seriously, intentionally consider engaging it. I am joined in God's mission. I'm not even going to choose whether or not. I know that I am committed to what God is doing in the world and the city and even in the lives of the people I'm doing life with. And I'm going to be joined with Him. And not only that, I'm going to be joined in some his pursuit, his pursuit of people, his passionate pursuit, his movement in people's lives. I'm going to be joined in pointing out that that is God moving. I'm going to be joined in pointing out that God can bring healing to that. I'm going to be joined in not only telling people, I'm going to be joined in showing people that they can have their wounds bandaged. And I'm going to take the chance and bandage their wounds because I am God's child. I'm not just going to tell them about the bandages anymore. I'm going to do the work of bandaging their wounds. I will bind them because Jesus has done everything it takes to make that happen. And that's going to lead to their lives experiencing a sense of restoration. And here's what this will look like, church. It'll look like people repenting of sin. It will look like people obeying Jesus' will. It will look like people finding real freedom in Jesus Christ. It will look like people who can't find love and acceptance out there find love and acceptance in here. No matter where they've come from, no matter what they've done, no matter what state of life they're in, no matter what category they fall into Jesus' Luke 4, 18 and 19, no matter what, what, what this vision looks like is a people who embrace them regardless of who they are because we know who they can be in Jesus and we will embrace them. It looks like black and white and Asian and Hispanic filling every chair. It looks like a picture that God intends it to look in heaven. It looks like a bunch of individuals, not just a church, but it looks like a bunch of individuals who are committed and joined in God's mission, who are joined in God's pursuit. He owns it of restoring lives as everyday people in our jobs, in our families, in our homes. In everyday ways, buying toiletry products and buying hygiene products and giving money and going out and feeding those who need hunger, proclaiming the gospel with a friend who's in need. In everyday places, in the streets, in this building, in school, in our neighborhood. Williamsburg Christian Church can be a church. And if what Jesus is saying is true, should be a church and has been moving in direction of being a church and in so many ways is a church that is joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. This can be our direction. This can be our hope. This can be our promise. This can be our purpose. When people ask you, what's Williamsburg Christian Church? You can say, well, just a simple, messed up group of people who are joined in God's pursuit 
of restoring lives. And we can look someone in the eyes and we can proclaim, as Jesus said, loudly in our tears, we can cry, no matter what you've done and no matter where you've been, no matter where you are, you can find redemption and restoration, not in us, in Jesus. We need to be a people who make much of Jesus and not wait for the church to do it. This is your call as a child of God. This is my call as a child of God. But just think what happens when you and I, when you and I as individual people, when our individual families are joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. Think about what happens when we come together. Think about what happens when God reveals needs to us. Think about the collective power that the Holy Spirit uses to change people's lives and to bring redemption and restoration into their lives. Think about how the city changes. I was told two, three years ago, and this is what captured my heart, that this church was asked a question. If this church were to close its doors, would the city even notice it was gone? And I heard your answers, and everyone that told me that question, everyone who told me that story said, the answer at that time was, we don't think so. And I know what it wasn't because of. It wasn't because of the fact that there are unloving, good, godly, spirit-filled people in this place. This is a, this is a beautiful place with beautiful people. But I know this. We've got to make much more of Jesus than we could ever think about making of ourselves. This isn't about you and me. This is about Jesus. Because he's done it. He's done the work. And he's the one who can provide the restoration and redemption. He's paid it all. And so he walks into the synagogue. And he takes the prophet's scroll, Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has come. God's kingdom has broken into our world. The gospel is real. Salvation is available. Restoration is possible. Church, who will tell them? Who will tell them that? Who will show them that? Will we? We arrange our lives individually for the life of God. We must. We can. And we should. Let's be a church that's joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives.